Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. And it's amazing, it's been about a year now that we've been doing these online teachings uh, because of the pandemic. We are looking forward to, hopefully in a few months, um, maybe maybe a little longer, but being able to get back to some regular in-person. But when we do, we will continue to do the Facebook Live because I know we picked up some new friends and family members through this, and we would love to continue to connect with you guys. So we'll keep doing that. Fortunately for us, our Sunday night gatherings have not been the most important part of our service, of our church, and that might surprise some of you. Um, if you've been around with us for a while, it doesn't, but if you're kind of new, that might surprise you. But we're actually going to talk about that tonight as we get towards the application, uh, which is really what we're looking at tonight is the application. So we've been going through Hebrews. We're up to chapter 10 of 13 chapters, so we're getting there. And um, tonight, he's going he's gonna to kind of take us to, oh, he's taken 10 chapters to really make his point, to explain the theory, to, to kind of go over the, the, the concepts and now he begins to get to, and therefore, this is what you should do. This is how it should look. This is the application. I know a lot of us are eager to get to application, so to take 10 chapters to get there, for some of us, we're kind of chomping at the bit, but it's really important to understand the concepts because they, the application flows directly from those. And if you haven't accepted those, which the Hebrews really had not yet, then it's important that he goes through that. And if you recall, even back in chapter 6, he was ready to move forward, and he takes a, like a, uh, actually chapter 5, he was ready to move forward, he takes a two-chapter, two-and-a-half-chapter parentheses to say, you're not ready yet for the big information. So he had to kind of work his way up to that. So it's taken him a while, but here we are. He's going to give us the recap, he's going to give us the summary again one more time. He did that in 9, but now he's going to give it to us with the goal towards actually the application. And um, so it's really important, but the application is really secondary. It flows from the concepts, which is why we spent so much time on it. So, so here we are, as I mentioned, we're going we're gonna to see a recap again. You may feel like we did that the last two weeks, and we kind of did, because the author of Hebrews takes about three chapters to recap, to drive home the main point over and over and over. And so that's what he's doing. And, but he's going to do it again, but this time he's really leading into a therefore, right? He's like, so here's the things we've learned. I want to remind you of them. So therefore, and it works for us because... We have a week in between each of these chapters, so sometimes it's good to be reminded what's happened because I don't know about you, but I've slept since then, and sometimes I forget things in between. So he starts with this in chapter 10. And we're, by the way, we're going to do part of chapter 10. We're not even going to get through the whole thing. Um, we'll save some of it for next week. But he says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. We've actually talked a lot about this, and this is what the author of Hebrews has been coming to the whole time. That the law is good, but it's good in the same way that a shadow of something good is good, right? It's a, it's a shadow of something good. And in this case, it's a foreshadowing. It's a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And this is the point that he's been making over and over and over to the Hebrews, is that they have gotten stuck in the idea that the law was it. That was the substance. That was the, the deepest things to understand about God. But the other Hebrews is saying, no, there's something much deeper, something much more substantive. And that is that these, these shadows, the law, are simply reflections of, but not reality. The law are the reflections 
of the realities which we're now seeing in Jesus. And I think this is so important, even for us. You know, we're not Hebrews, and you might say, some of us aren't, some of you maybe. But you might say, why is this relevant to us? Why are we going through all this? Because we do the same thing. We, we come to the gospel. It's the first thing we've ever heard for many of us about the Messiah, right? Many of us do not have years and years of waiting for the Messiah to come or learning about the Messiah and then finding Jesus. We find Jesus first, and that's the first we ever hear about the Messiah. And so we assume that that's the beginning. We're kind of like, that's the rudimentary, that's the Sunday school lesson. And now we're moving ahead into something more important. And the other Hebrews keeps making the point, that's not the case. The truth is that everything that came before Jesus was just a shadow of Jesus, was just a picture of what was to come. And so that's what he starts with, these shadows. This is part of the bottom line we've been hitting for several weeks. These shadows are, are reflections of, but not in themselves, reality. He goes on, he says, for this reason, it can never, it being the law, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So this is another point he's been making and that he's recapping is that, you know, if the law worked, if it was intended to be the reality of our redemption, why did it have to happen year after year after year? And all that happened is it became a reminder of the reality of our sins. It didn't actually remove the reality of our sins. And this is the problem with shadows. Shadows leave an impermanent mark on the world, right? A shadow can't actually change anything, but people can. You, can. you can have impact on things. You can dig a hole in the ground, and that hole is there. But a shadow can't dig a hole in the ground. It can only mimic you digging the hole in the ground. And it's the same thing. The law can mimic, it can sort of reflect the actual salvation that comes through Jesus, but it can't actually leave any mark. It doesn't actually change anybody. It doesn't actually redeem anybody. And so that's the point he's making, because it can't. And if it, if it did, then it wouldn't have happened over and over and over and over. He goes on. He says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, I think this is important to recognize. I think the Hebrews knew this. I don't think they were confused about this. If you really look through Scripture, God is so clear about this throughout the Old Testament as well as the New I think they understood that the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrifices they were doing didn't actually take away their sins. They were simply reflections of their faith or reflections of their desire to, to be connected to God or reflections of God's own desire to connect them to himself. But I think they knew they didn't actually take away their sins because if they had taken away their sins, they would have never had to do it again. He goes on, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So the shadows remind us of what is real. They remind us of our sins, right? In fact, the law, it couldn't change our sin, but it could remind us of our sins. It could reflect what was real. And what was real was the sin. And what was, what was being approximated, what was being reflected, what was being hinted at, was the redemption, but it wasn't actually happening through the law. God didn't change his mind. It wasn't a, a plan that he uprooted. It was always intended to just be a shadow of what was coming. And then Jesus says, here, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. So the other thing we see is prophecies in the Old Testament. A lot of prophecy in the Old Testament was about God explaining the shadows if people would listen. 
a lot of times it was God explaining to people, it's not about the bulls, it's not about the goats, it's about the Messiah to come, it's about a greater thing to come, it's about me changing your hearts and your minds, we'll actually see him quote that prophecy later. And so, again, shadows and prophecies telling us of what's to come, but not the reality themselves. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. And that becomes the question, right? He says, he says you don't want sacrifices and offerings. They weren't what you desire, but they were done in accordance with the law. So if they weren't what God desired, then why were they in the law? Why did God put them in the law if he didn't desire them to be done? Well, here's the point. What God actually desired, what he ultimately desired, was salvation, redemption, and change. He desired that we become people without sin. He desired that we become people devoted to him. He desired that we become, that we be made righteous, that we be saved from our sin, from our bondage to sin. But the law didn't do that. So that wasn't really what he desired. The sacrifices weren't what he desired. But they were in the law because they pointed to the answer to his desire. They were in the law because they pointed to what we did need. So they weren't in the law because they fulfilled what God desired. They were in the law because they showed us that the fulfillment was coming. And that is what the author of Hebrews has been saying for chapters, and that's what he's saying now. He's reminding us of it. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. The point being, Jesus sets aside the law to establish the actual desires of God, the redemption of man. He sets aside the law, which pointed at it, to the desires. He sets aside the shadows to embrace the real. If we were distracted by shadows, if you had a friend over and you guys were sitting outside at the park and so it was a sunny day and your shadows were on the ground, your friend would probably think you were odd if you spent all your time talking to the shadows, right? If you only interacted with the shadow, he'd be like, hey, I'm over here, right? Because he set aside the shadows to focus on what's real. We've, we've used a couple of other analogies along the way just to briefly remind you. We set aside the signpost to embrace the destination, right? We leave aside the sign to Santa Fe so we can get there. We get, another way you can think of it is a treasure map, right? If, you, if you're following a treasure map and it leads you to X marks the spot and you spend all this time I watch, I don't know if any of you ever watch this, I watch the um, uh, Curse of Oak Island, is that what it's called? The Curse of Oak Island, and it's been six years or seven years or something we've been watching this, and the, these guys are, are, are digging up the island, and they're finding all sorts of cool stuff. They're finding all sorts of historical artifacts from the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s, it's really pretty cool. But what they're looking for is treasure, and they keep following all these clues and all these hints, and they really enjoy the clues and hints. And sometimes the TV show, because it would get boring to watch people dig stuff up that never is quite what you want it to be, spends a lot of time on the clues and hints. But I'm always like, let's get past the clues and get to the treasure. <laughs> I want to see the treasure. And wouldn't it be weird if one day they found the treasure and they left the treasure and went back to looking at the clues? They just enjoyed the hints and ignored the treasure? That would be weird. Because you set aside the treasure map when you find the treasure. You set aside the hints when you find the solution. And so that's what he's saying, setting aside the, the, the pictures in order to establish the reality. So you set aside the shadows in order to find what's really there. He says, and by that will, the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, as opposed to the shadows which make no permanent mark. When Jesus came, what he did is he's made a permanent change. This is not a transient change. This is not something that will change back. This isn't something that we need Jesus to sacrifice himself over and over and over for, like the high priest did in the old law. No, this is permanent, once for all. 
the sacrifice of Jesus. And what has it done? It's made us holy, not just made us look holy. See, again, the law reflected holiness. Our doing it gave an impression of holiness. And it wasn't that that impression was bad, but it wasn't the reality. What Jesus has done has made us holy. Paul is clear about this in the New Testament, the epistle writers are, that we have actually been made righteous before God. We have been made holy. And to say before God doesn't minimize it. It makes it more true. God sees only what's true. He sees only what's accurate. He's never deceived. So if we're holy in his eyes, then we're holy. If we're righteous in his eyes, then we're righteous. Who are we to say we see better than he does? We don't. So this is a permanent change. We've actually been changed. Because the Jesus is the reality and not the shadow. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. See, there it is, laid out, black and white. They don't take away sins. The sacrifices don't do that. So they simply point to the one who can. But when this priest has offered, but when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, this priest being Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God. Can you imagine that? Why sit down? Why does it make a point of that? Because he's done. His work is done. When you sit down, when you've completed your job, when you've done your work, right? The high priest stands over and over and over and over. But this priest completed the job and sat down at the right hand of God. And then he says, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. I want you to notice a couple of things about this. So he sits. His mission is completed. We mentioned this last week. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished. It's done. I've done my job, right? And so we live at this glorious time when the good news, the gospel is good news. Why is it good news? Not because it's something we're waiting for. It's something that's been done. We have been redeemed, and we, we are just telling people that. Why, why do we do this? Why do we preach sermons? Partly so that people have a chance to hear, you can be redeemed. The job has been done. The mission's been accomplished. All you need to do is say yes. All you need to do is say yes. And it's been done. But there is this other thing. He's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. So there is this second mission of God's, which is simply to sort of cleanse the world, that, that, that there's going to be a redemption of the whole universe. It's not just us that are being saved, but the entire universe is going to be redeemed and made right. Justice will come to bear. Justice will be there. Holiness will win out. Good overcomes evil, and love will never fail. And these are all things that are true that haven't happened yet. Our universe is still suffering under a curse. It's still laboring under, under evil. But someday, that also, the redemption has already been begun. It's been completed in us in many ways, in our souls. But there's still this sanctification. There's still this work in the whole universe to go on. He's still, we're going to see this in the next line. It says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, this is an interesting thing. We've been made perfect forever, but we're being made holy. How can those both be true? This is kind of like when we saw Jesus was perfect but then he was learning obedience. And we're like, how can he be made more perfect? Well, in our case, what this refers to, I believe, is that we have been made perfect forever. We have been made holy. We've been made righteous, and that's not going to be taken away from us. But also, the scripture writers talk about salvation in sort of three parts. They talk about the fact that salvation includes a past tense, it includes a present tense, and it includes a future tense. The past tense is that we've been made holy, right? There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. Nothing. God has made you righteous in Christ. If you said yes to the righteousness of Jesus, that's done. You are righteous. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what you think, you're righteous. You've been made righteous and holy. That's a past tense. It also talks about the fact that we've moved from death into life. That's a past tense. You can't go back to death. 
Physically, our bodies will die. We'll talk about that later. But, but you are now alive. Now, but there's also this present tense of salvation that it talks about that we're being saved, or as he says here, being made holy. And this is referring to the reflections of who we are, right? So who we are, the substance of who we are, has been changed. But our minds and our behaviors and the way we think about things, that hasn't changed yet. Or it's changing slowly, right? And so as we go through life, we're learning more and more how to live like the people that we are. How to make sure that what we do and what we're thinking reflects what's changed in our spirits. That we have been made holy, now we learn how to think that way and live that way. But it doesn't change our holiness before God. It simply is bringing the rest of sort of the, the superficial aspects of who we are in line with the substance of who we are. It goes on and says that in the future, our whole bodies will then be made holy, made perfect. So it's sort of like it was our spirit, and then, then it's our minds and our behaviors, and then when we go to heaven, we're going to be given new bodies. And so then from, from beginning to end, we'll be made perfect. And all of this was accomplished at the cross. Some of it we still please see playing out in our timeline. But it's all guaranteed, and it's been done once, and it doesn't have to be done again, and there's nothing you can do to sort of make yourself more righteous before God. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Jeremiah says this. He says this at a time when the Israelites can't seem to get it right. And God says to them, no matter what you do, you always mess up. You cannot keep the covenant that I keep asking you to keep. But then God says, but the promise is, I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to change your minds. I'm going to put my law in you. So it will no longer be this external reflection, but will be part of the essence of who you are. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So he says, I'm going to change the heart and mind, and I'm going to, I'm going to remove their sins from them. I'm going to actually take them away. And he says this, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. See, part of the reason Jesus only had to do the sacrifice once for all is because he made us righteous. Once he's done that, there's just no need to do the sacrifice again. That's the bottom line point. So salvation is, is a resurrection. It's a new nature. It's followed by the sanctification of our mind and our hearts, and it's followed by a, a new body. And because sin is gone, because sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west, says scripture in another place, there's no longer another need for sacrifice of sin. It's done. Elsewhere in scripture it says he's taken our sins and he's tied them to a big anchor and he's thrown them into the deepest part of the sea. The point is, we can't retrieve them, right? We can't bring up the Titanic. There's no way we're going to be able to bring up the, the, the sins of everybody that's around. So this is the concept. This is what he's been saying for several chapters. So what's the application? What do we do with this? Well, he says, therefore, always a good clue that, that whatever has been before is now leading to a conclusion, right? I, uh, one of my uh, teachers used to say, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And we know what the therefore is there. It's not just the preceding verses. It's the entire ten chapters before, really. It's the entire nine and a half chapters before. That what we're seeing is, look, this is all true. We've been made holy. We've been made righteous. The sacrifice of Jesus is real. It's substantive. And it's permanent. And therefore, what do we do about that? So this is what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters. I didn't put this on the list you're going to see, but now that I'm thinking about it, I should have. I think it's interesting even in therefore that he now addresses them as family. Because one of the things that's changed is we have become families in the, in the family of God. We've become brothers and sisters in the family of God. We all are siblings. We're all in the same place. I'm not superior to you. You're not superior to me. Our righteousness all comes from Jesus. And so we, we, 
We learn to move together with a common faith. We don't think the same, we don't act the same, but we have a unity in our faith, in our recognition that our righteousness is in Christ. So he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, and then he says this, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, remember we talked about that, we get to now enter in behind the curtain. We get to go where only the high priest got to go before. And this isn't even the application. This is part of the concept that leads to the application. He says, because we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So since everything we've been talking about is true, since we can now enter the presence of God, what's the first thing we should do? Let us draw near to God. That is kind of an obvious flow of application, isn't it? Because we can, let's do it. <laughs> because we are now allowed, let's go there. Don't stand back and say, well, Jesus has made a way for me, but I don't want to deserve God. Jesus has made a way for me, but i got to work a lot before I can go see God. i got to get my makeup on and dress myself up and make sure I don't have any of these sin stains left on me. You know, Jesus has done it. We now can enter with confidence. So because that's true, do it. So the first application, and I would argue maybe the most important application of everything in Hebrews, is draw near to God. Do it. Approach him. You know, it's amazing to me how much time we spend trying to make ourselves acceptable to God, and he's already done all that work. And it's a waste of time for us to try to make ourselves that way. The other thing we do that wastes time is we spend a lot of time running from God. We're afraid that if we turn to him, he's going to be frowning at us, he's going to be stern with us, he's going to be mad at us, he's going to be correcting us, he's going to be punishing us. But there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Anytime you turn back to God, he looking, he's looking at you with a smile on his face by virtue of you turning to him. And so this is what he says, draw near to God. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whatever the struggle is, this is the first application. You have been given access to a place that for thousands of years only one person once a year was allowed to go. And you've been given access. Take advantage of it. Draw near to God. I remember hearing stories about President Kennedy when he was in the White House and John John. He was one of the few presidents we've had who had young kids while he was in the White House. And, and that John John used to run in while, while President Kennedy would be in the middle of a meeting, in the Oval Office or wherever he was. He would just run in and he would jump on the lap of his father. And his father had made a standing order with the Secret Service and everybody that this was always to be allowed, that his son would always be allowed to come to him. He had full access. And what's interesting to me is it sounds like John John took advantage of that. He never said, well, I'm not going to go in. He took the opportunity to draw near to the father, and that's what he says. That's the first application. So the law, remember, was a shadow that kept us distant from God. Do you remember that? Because it was a shadow, there were all these curtains, and there were all these walls, and the tabernacle had all these levels. And the whole thing was it kept us away from God a little bit. It was a distancing thing, but the reality, the substance is, through, the, through Jesus, through his body, he has made a way for us to draw near to God. So draw near to God is the first application. He goes on. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Not only should we draw near to God, but we should do it with a full assurance and a sincere heart. What does that mean? You know what I think it means? I think it means we don't have to pretend anymore, right? I think even as we draw near to God, we're always trying to dress it up. We're always trying to make sure God sees our best side. I got news for you. He sees every side. 
He knows everything about you. There's nothing you can hide, even if you wanted to. Everything is laid bare. I don't know if you remember, but a few, we, a few weeks ago in Hebrews, we talked about how the Word of God is able to divide them, the, the soul and the spirit, and cuts into the marrow of the bone and lays everything bare, exposes all of us. But see, with God, that's okay, because we can go with a sincere heart. We don't have to go holding part of ourselves back, wondering if it's okay, because God cleanses the deepest parts. And so he says, draw near with a sincere heart and a full assurance. Come to God with that faith that says, I can come to God because he's made me appropriate to come to him. I don't have to hide it. I just think there's so few people in our lives. Maybe there are no people in your lives that you can come to just as you are, right? There's always just a little bit of, I got to be this way or, or that way, or if I cross this line, I think that's probably true for everybody. That if I cross this line or that line, then I'll no longer be as acceptable to this person. And yet with God, we can draw there with a full assurance and a sincere heart. Don't hide anything from him. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no need for hypocrisy. Just be completely who you are with him, knowing that you can do that. Draw near to God as you are, completely as you are. Then he says this. Uh, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So there is something with salvation that comes which is baptism. But again, even baptism is a reflection of the reality that's happened. But that's what he's referencing there. That, we, that our hearts have been cleansed and our bodies have reflected that and come to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Hold unswervingly to the hope. He says, look, even if you find yourself drawing near to God and you come with full assurance, there's going to be other days you're going to feel unworthy. There's going to be days that you're going to question whether God is really as good as he says, whether his gospel is as cleansing as you hoped. There's going to be days that other people are going to tell you that God doesn't want you around. There's going to be days other people tell you you aren't lovable or you're not worthy or whatever it is. And he says, on those days, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. But what is that hope? This is where we get messed up. The hope we profess is not the hope that we can hold it together. It's not the hope that we can do the right things so that God will continue to love us. What is the hope we profess? It's that he who promised is faithful. That's what he says. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So draw near to God with the full assurance and always keep drawing near every day, all the time. Hold unswervingly to the hope that God is faithful, that he is the one who has made you righteous. He's the one who has made you holy. The second you start slipping into the idea that you have to make yourself righteous is the second that you start moving towards self-righteousness and towards guilt and towards pride and, and away from God. So keep clinging unswervingly to the hope that he who promised is faithful. Why do I personally believe, and I know there's differences in the, in the world, about, in, the, in the church world about this, but I'll share with you what I believe. Why do I believe that you can't lose your salvation? I, I think there's a lot of scriptures we can argue about, but the bottom line is, I believe you can't lose your salvation because he who promised is faithful. Because it's not based on you. Because it's based upon Jesus having made a way that we can come with full assurance and a sincere heart. And we can hold unswervingly to the hope that he offers. If you think about it, these first three applications are all faith, aren't they? And if you think back through the book of Hebrews, this has been an important point. He's repeatedly said that God throughout time, the Sabbath, the, the promised land, 
the other areas that he's talked about, that God makes promises and that what happens is the righteous respond by faith. And they're made righteous by faith. That that's what it's about. It's not about the law. It's about the promises that God makes. Paul tells us elsewhere that for all of God's promises, Jesus is the yes, right? It's like God said, I promise you this, I promise you this, I promise you this. And then we say, well, where's the answer to the promises? Where's the yes that's happening? And, and Jesus is the yes. He is the, the affirmation of all those promises. And what do we do? What's our most important application? It's faith. And I'm going to tell you something. I believe this is true of scripture. The most important application of every scripture is faith. It's not what you do. It's not how you take it and apply it in other ways. It's faith. It's about accepting it, internalizing it, believing it. Believing this is true of who God is. This is always the first application. I grew up in a tradition which I think very honorably and, and well taught me that it was important to apply scripture. And that is true because scripture means something. It's relevant. It shouldn't just be something you read and walk away and ignore. And I learned valuable things from that. But I also for a while thought that I had to, I could, if a scripture didn't have an immediate behavioral application, that it was not really relevant for me. And I remember one day reading a passage which said, if you knew the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God, then you would be filled with the fullness of God. And I almost skipped over that verse thinking, well, I can't apply that. How can I apply that? And then I looked at it again and it said, this is how you'll know the fullness of God. And I thought, well, I want that, so how do I apply that? And the answer was clear. It's faith. I'm still learning that. But it's faith. It's believing God. The first application is always faith. Even if it ends up being a behavioral application, it should come from faith, not from any other reason. When you read a scripture and you do what it says, you should do it because you believe it. Because you believe God. Because you believe God's goodness and you believe that he knows what he's talking about. That will lead you to making errors, I even believe, in your behavior, in your application, in your physical application. If you start with faith, it'll kind of keep you on track. But he goes on. And he gives us other, there's a second application that often comes in scripture after faith. All right, so the first application, I believe, is always faith. But then he goes on and says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It's an interesting thing in scripture that love often arises from faith. This is what we see. We even talked to one point about the love which springs from the hope and the faith, right? So as we believe God, it often leads to love. Our ability to really love other people, man, a lot of it comes down to believing that God has done what he's done. See, here's the thing I know, and you know this too, and you don't even have to be introspective to know this because you see it in everybody you know. You know that people don't love you very well, right? And if you are introspective, you probably recognize you don't love other people very well. But either way, there is this difficulty about loving. But you know what it usually comes down to? Our own insecurities get in the way. It's not that we want to be mean to people, but we get, we're insecure. We're, we're concerned about how we're coming across. We're concerned about our own fears and our own prides and defending ourselves and protecting ourselves. And it makes us unable to really love. And you know what makes us able to love? is not simply deciding. It's not flipping a switch. It's not saying, well, I'm just going to stop protecting myself. Because everything in you says, protect yourself. But you know what leads to love is faith. The more we believe that God has made us righteous, the more we believe that we have access to the throne room of God, and that he's on our side, and he's just tickled with our presence, and he's just delighted to hang out with us, the more we believe that, the easier it becomes to love other people. Because we have less to defend and protect in ourselves. The less offended and hurt we become when other people don't love us well. Because we have the love of the God of the universe, which is more affirming than the love of other people 
who are all wounded and hurt and sometimes only know how to love when it brings them something in return. But our God isn't like that. He knows how to love because he is love. And he loves you. And so I think that believing the gospel, believing the righteousness, believing these things, that's what enables us to begin to love others. And so he says, as you believe these things, as you see this, as you're kind of freed from the law, and you're not having to spend all your time, even just practical terms, you know, if all your time is spent making atonement for your own sins, when do you ever have time to love anybody else, right? Well, now you do. So let's consider, think about, really chew on it, not only how we can love other people, but how can we spur one another on toward love and good deeds? How can we in the church help one another to love each other and love other people, to be good and to do good, right? How can we do that? That's what it says. Consider that. Think about it, right? Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. He goes on, he says this, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now I want to address this because this is a very interesting point that's come up this year, hasn't it? In fact, I've heard this verse used a lot of times to say that churches like ours which have opted to not get together in a live worship setting, are somehow violating this verse. And you know what? If this was all it was about, I would agree with you. Because we're not meeting together, right? Really? No. I'm talking and you're listening, and maybe there's a comment here or there, but this is not a meeting together. But I would go further. I would say that for a long time we've been confused, I think, about what, what the author of Hebrews is really exhorting churches to do. If meeting together has only ever been about coming together to hear a sermon and listen to a really good praise band, then I think we've missed the point of Hebrews anyway. How is either of those considering how we spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Well, you might argue the pastor is spurring you on towards love and good deeds, but that means he's the only one who's applying this verse, right? He considers every week how to spur you towards love and good deeds, but how are you spurring him towards love and good deeds? How are you spurring your neighbor towards love and good deeds when you go to that worship setting and you sit? Now, we do this on Facebook because we think a sermon is relevant. And we do worship because we think worship is relevant. And maybe you don't just come to listen to a band. Maybe you participate in worship and we think that is relevant. But I don't think any of that is what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. That's important to ask. What does he mean when he says not giving up meeting together? Well, it's really obvious. He says it at both the beginning and the end of this section. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. So what's the point? To spur one another on towards love and good deeds. But he goes on, he says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want you to notice what surrounds this idea of meeting together is one another. Everybody is supposed to be doing it for everybody. And in most of our churches, what we do on Sunday mornings does not allow for everybody to be considering how they can spur other people towards love and good deeds, nor does it allow for everyone to be encouraging everyone else. It just isn't the way that our Sunday mornings are set up. And yet this is what the meeting together is about. And this is why I want to tell you at Focus Church, we haven't quit meeting together this whole year. Our focus groups have continued to meet together. Now, they've done it virtually, and I wasn't sure it would work, but it did. And how do I know it worked? Because these things are happening. Because we're spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. I've seen people reach out and love and, and be the church and care for each other throughout this pandemic. And I've seen people encourage each other and all the more. Look, as the days go by, there's more and more and more need for us to encourage each other. 
So when he calls the church to come together, to hold unswervingly to their faith, and then to move into love, he says that you have to meet together all the more. You need to encourage each other all the more regularly. And we see in our focus groups that they do this not only on their meeting times, but they're learning to do it outside of their meeting times as well. They're reaching out to each other. Now, do we want to get back together in person? We do, and we will. But I want to point out to you that just being in person is not the exhortation here. That we could have chosen to continue doing our sermons live with people there, and that would not be following this verse. We could have chosen instead to do what we did, which is have our groups continue to encourage each other over Zoom, and that is applying this verse. And that's what I want to be clear about. That faith and love are the applications, and the discipleship that's encouraged here is a one another. At Focus, we call it many-to-many. -many. We talk about how in discipleship, you can think of one-to-many. That's what's happening now. I am teaching all of you. It has its place, but I'm the only one doing work here. And then we have one-to-one, -one, and that also has its place. But when we do one-to-one -one discipleship, that person we're discipling only learns about us and what we know about Jesus and how we reflect Jesus. But when everybody in a group is sharing with everybody in a group, when we're all sharing the love and the faith and the grace that God has given us, then people learn about the fullness of Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Because it's not just about one person. So we think many to many is the point. And that's what I think we see being emphasized and encouraged during this application. One another. Not one to others, but one another. Encourage one another all the more. We need to do it more and more and more. And I actually do believe that God has been making a transition in the church since before the pandemic. But I think with the pandemic, he kind of turned up the heat. And he caused us all to think even more about what it means to be the church. And it means that we have to all be engaged in discipleship with each other. And that doesn't mean all teaching each other. We're not all teachers. But it means all loving each other. It means all sharing the grace of God with each other. It means all encouraging each other. And how do we encourage each other? With the message of Hebrews. How do we encourage each other? With the idea that we have been made righteous before God and that Jesus is the yes to God's promises. So I want to invite you, if you have any interest at all, to join us in our discipleship. We have now the ability to do this across, across borders, across states, across, I assume, national borders, so that hasn't happened yet. But we have the ability to do this geographically and yes, we'll, we'll still encourage people in those pockets to meet together where they can. But that means even if you're in, in you know, Washington, D.C., and you join one of our groups here, over time, you'll have people join you in Washington, D.C. as well. And so we believe that discipleship can multiply this way. And if you want to join us, join us. Just send me a link. I'd be glad to invite you to one of our groups. What you will find in our groups is that we take very seriously the idea that you do not have to think like we think. But what we want to do is encourage you to believe what we believe about Jesus. We want you to see that he is the yes to God's promises. So thanks for hanging out with me. This is Hebrews 10. We'll go on with the rest of chapter 10 next week. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, 
underscore at Mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.